Many people will say that if you look at the message of Jesus, you can summarize it by kingdom of God. He was constantly preaching the kingdom of God, which meant that God, that Jesus is Lord of every part of life. everybody and welcome to the final episode of Better Stories Season 3, final episode of 2022. We are on the cusp of a brand new year and yeah, it's going to be a good one. I'm, I'm excited about it. I love this time. I love this season of kind of in between Christmas and New Year's and it's just a, it's a space. It's a relaxing space. For me, it's a project space. It's been good. I hope yours has been good as well. I am bringing you the final episode of our season three today, and I'm so excited about it because I was able to interview um, a new friend of mine, uh, an amazing, brilliant author, leader named Michelle Sanchez. Michelle is right now the executive minister of Make and Deepen Disciples for the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is my kind of tribe denomination. Uh, The church that I lead here in West Virginia is a part of the Evangelical Covenant. Um, It's a multi-ethnic denomination of more than 875 congregations, and Michelle is the uh, lead minister of the Make and Deepen Disciples priority for this family. She's also the author, and this is what we spend our time talking about today. She's the author of Color Courageous Discipleship, Color Courageous Discipleship Student Edition, and the picture book, that goes with it, God's Beloved Community. And I'm telling you, if you haven't, you need to find these books, get them. They are incredible. Color Courageous Discipleship is one of the most helpful books regarding racial reconciliation and what that means for followers of Jesus that I have ever read. And it does have a student edition with it, as well as a picture book for younger readers called God's Beloved Community. Michelle's life story is fascinating. Um, She After she studied international business at NYU, she worked as an investment banker with Goldman Sachs and spent her time ministering to international students with CRU, Campus Crusade. She served in a variety of capacities with the Institute for Bible Reading, with the Lausanne Movement. Um, She's a conference speaker. She's a columnist for Outreach Magazine. You can read more about her at michelletsanchez.com. I'm going to put all these links in our show notes. But more than anything, I want you to know she is, as I said, an amazing leader, author, speaker, and one of the leading thinkers regarding what discipleship that cares about anti-racism looks like. We had an incredible conversation, and I hope you enjoy it today on episode 10 of season 3 of The Better Stories. But I'm really excited for you to introduce yourself first of all. And, I, you know, I was reading your bio and everything from Campus Crusade to Goldman and Sachs. I feel like there is a uh-huh. big, broad-loaded story here that I want, I want you to just tell as much of it as you want. Hey. All right, so have we started? Yeah, we'll just jump in. Yeah, we'll just jump in and I'll kind of edit from there. Perfect. Okay. Well, yes, I am so grateful to be here with you, Justin. Um, I have, my name is Michelle Sanchez, and I have led discipleship and evangelism for the Evangelical Covenant Church for the past seven to eight years. the Evangelical Covenant Church, obviously, this is the church that you are part of, Justin, and your church plant. Um, 
It is a multi-ethnic denomination of 875 to 900 congregations and it's just a really vibrant place to be. Um, I recently have released three books. They are a trilogy. So the first is Color Courageous Discipleship. We have a student edition for Color Courageous Discipleship second and then third there is a picture book called God's Beloved Community. And these are all about the connection between race and discipleship. In terms of my background, I had no plans to go into ministry ever. Um, I was a businesswoman. I studied international business at NYU, and then I worked as an investment banker for a time with Goldman Sachs. Um, long story about how I transitioned from that to ministry, but um, the Lord called me to serve international students with crew in New York City for a time. And then I, uh, from there, went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary and haven't looked back. So yeah, I um, I love all things related to, to discipleship, evangelism, as well as multi-ethnic church. So I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, you don't meet too many people who say, I didn't just write my first book. I wrote yeah. three books. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I can mm -hmm. imagine that you are an incredibly driven person, would be my guess. Yes, and you, we all know that there's um, blessings and, and, and some dark sides to being an incredibly driven person. Yeah. But yes, my, my prayer is the Lord would be able to use all three of these because yeah. the goal is to disciple whole communities and whole families at the same time. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, and I will, I want to jump into your your book and conversations about that here in a minute. But tell me a little bit about your family, where you guys are located. I think you said Chicago but just a little bit about that and you know what what are you most passionate about right now what are you what are you pouring yourself into i know that's a loaded oh, question um, yeah so i am originally an east coast girl so i grew up in new york and as i mentioned went to nyu from there i did 10 years in boston and now am in chicago um, and i've been here almost a decade um, i live here with my husband mickey of 20 years, Mickey Sanchez. He works with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Northwestern. And uh, if anyone is curious, my last name Sanchez comes from my husband. He's got a Colombian background. Uh, I myself am African-American. And then we've got two little ones who are sorta not so little anymore. Uh, my son and my daughter, they are 12 and nine years old. So what am I passionate about? Yeah, but first, so you wrote a, three yeah. books with a 12 and nine-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well done. But you know, what, you know what ended up being really fun about that is I did, first of all, um, the, the student edition or the youth edition, my son can read. He can, he, it's like his age range. And then same for the picture book. So it's kind of fun to write these and have my kids in mind as I did. And so they felt some ownership in that. And for the picture book, they helped me choose the illustrator. That's so cool. it was a family affair. That's awesome. And I've seen <laughs> that in your social media posts, all the stuff that you guys are putting out now, it's clear that your family's right beside you in that, which I think is yeah, really amazing. It's been so cool. Yeah, really amazing. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm reading your book right now and I just, I've, it's phenomenal. Like I am so grateful and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, but I, but I want you to know, like, it is really, really solid for where I am um, as a as a pastor in an Appalachian community that's predominantly white. It's it's very helpful 
Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to kind of dig into that a little bit. Why don't you give us kind of an overview of what this is all about, Color, Color Courageous Discipleship? And I, and I know there's multiple yeah. books, but we'll kind of zero in on that, Color Courageous Discipleship, and the subtitles, Follow Jesus, Dismantle Racism, and Build Beloved Community. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, if anyone had told me that I would write a book related to race five years ago, I would never have believed them. Yes, I'm black, but there's a lot of things I'm interested in. And, you know, as I've mentioned so far, my sweet spot really has been discipleship evangelism uh, as a theme. Okay. And so when it comes to things like helping people read the Bible, you know, study the Bible, love that, um, prayer, uh, devotional retreats, spiritual direction, worship, all of these kind of traditional <laughs> discipleship or spiritual formation related topics have been my sweet spot in addition to evangelism, mm -hmm. obviously with the crew background, how do you share your faith, apologetics, how do you defend the faith, all of that, that's, that's what I was into um, for most of my Christian life. And for me, race, kind of fell into a separate category. And even in the covenant, we got it in separate departments. You know, there's a discipleship department and then there's the love, mercy, do justice, and they handle all the race stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So it, for me, they just, I didn't really see that much of a connection um, and felt like it was a different department, but that all really fell apart in 2020 as we all experienced mm -hmm. the racial reckoning in our country. Yeah. And I began to realize like, Okay, um, what, I ask questions like, what is the connection between all this discipleship stuff that I love and the problems that we're facing and the issues we're facing now? Even more, why is it that we're having continued racial challenges and inequity and injustice in places where there are lots of so-called Christian disciples? What is going on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? right? So my friend. I started looking for resources that really dug in to those questions and I couldn't find anything quite in the center of that. And so I began to pray about it, you know, reflect on this and then write. And essentially I just didn't stop writing. And, and now what we have before us is Color Courageous Discipleship, which really looks into the fact that racial reconciliation, anti-racism, these things are basic foundational components of being a disciple of Jesus. They are connected. They are related to being a disciple of Jesus. And the fact that we haven't made that connection has led us to the quandary that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I want to dig a couple of things in that. One is, as you were writing that, was it a, oh my gosh, this is coming out. What am I going to do with this? Or was it like, yes, this is the thing that I meant to do. I've got, because I feel like when we make those choices to go all in on that stuff, like we're either like really disturbed even more by it, or it's a release of like, finally, here we go. Can it be both my yeah, friends? Sure. It can absolutely be both. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I don't even, oh, I mean, I, I think it dawned upon me as I was entering into that journey that that the Lord has uniquely situated me to explore, obviously, the intersection between um, faith or discipleship and race. 
I feel uniquely situated for that, both in my career and just in my life. Yeah. Um, so I noticed that, but also, I don't know if you've heard, but race is a little bit of a controversial subject. And so I much prefer to talk about Bible reading, okay, um, than I do race. And so it was like, oh my goodness, you know, like, so kind of all of it, all of it at once. Like I, I was nervous. Um, to, to kind of wade into these waters, but also saw the Lord had given me unique opportunity to do so. Yeah, that's incredible. I, so you used the phrase, and, and I'm familiar with this, but I want kind of our listeners to talk about this, this idea of anti-racism, because I still think yes. that's a new concept in, in a predominantly white setting in a, in a lot of ways. Can you, can you speak to that, define that? What does that look like? Absolutely. So um, before I do that, let me say, obviously, words are very important. Words really define our reality, shape who we are, what our communities are. Um, And so I take a lot of time. I've got like an extensive glossary at the back of the book because I'm like, words are so important. So it's a little bit like asking, hey, can you define discipleship? Can you define justice? Can you just define that? Because they're so big, right? And different people will come at it different ways. So with all those caveats, let me say this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a little bit of a shift because for many years, people would talk about, Christian people would talk about racial reconciliation and that is still relevant, but more and more people have started leaning into this term anti-racism. And I think both are valid, at, but they're getting at different things. Mm-hmm. They're getting at different aspects of the conversation, both of which are important. So racial reconciliation, for me, in my mind, that is primarily a, a relational focus. It is focused on the relational aspects, which what kind of relationships have been broken, um, especially on an interpersonal level, but it could go beyond that. But let's look at the brokenness of relationships and what we can do to fix them. We still need that. Anti-racism is different. It is really talking about what do we see as being broken about our systems about larger kind of structures and institutions and policies and big patterns and bigger things than just relationships. Um, what are what are some of these ongoing systemic inequalities that we see in our system that won't change unless we actively resist it and and work to to disrupt you know these inequalities and so that's where you get the idea of anti-racism it's really getting more into the justice side of things and calling people to to see where racism is at work and actively you know take it down and i think that's so so rich and so helpful it has been in my journey um the covenant has been a gift for me who grew up in a you know a very kind of small town um country setting but but great people and, and I feel like for the 10 years I've been a church planner, I, and I've said this to several people, I feel like I've had to be an interpreter of the covenant to our Appalachian context and an interpreter of our context back to the covenant. And the, that language has become so helpful. And I think you speak to this in the book when you talk about the four levels of sin, of individual, interpersonal, systemic, cosmic. I think we're so, as a church, and this is the discipleship piece, right, is we're so inundated with individual sin or interpersonal yeah. sin. And I hear it all the time when we speak to these things here. Well, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. Are you, I guess my question is, how are you engaging those conversations? Are you seeing that 
as a denominational leader who's functioning in multiple contexts all the time? What What is that conversation like for you? Oh, well, remember what I just said about how words are yeah. so important and, and how we um, illustrate our ideas. So yeah, see the thing about racism um, or you know racial inequality in our country as it currently functions is that we are only gonna make progress if we see it on different levels. And my experience in working with people and churches is that we, we more easily tend to see it on certain levels, um, especially the individual or interpersonal. So there's been a lot of focus on that in the evangelical world of which we remain a part. Um, we see a lot of that and that's great and good progress has been made. Thank God, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that most folks are like not embracing interpersonal racism anymore as a part of who they are. That is, I call that progress, wouldn't you, Justin? Right. Um, yes, but somehow, and this is what we started to see in 2020, somehow, you know, even though um, we don't really have racists anymore in that sense of the word, we still have massive racial inequality mm -hmm. in almost every area of life that can be measured. Um, and there's so much, you know, obviously in the book, I give very specific examples, but there's, you know, countless examples of this. So the question is, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. And I find, okay, I find that in my interactions, when we actually just look, just take a look at the, um, wake up to the evidence and wake up to the realities, uh, most people, you know, want to be a part of that solution. But they need to understand, you know, I'm not talking about you personally are a racist trying to hurt somebody. I'm saying, no, on a big level, we've still got some big problems here and we're only going to solve them if we link arms and work together. Yeah, yeah. I So, gosh, there's so many, my mind is like racing. So <laughs> I, I love your passion for this. I love the wisdom that you're bringing as well. Um you you make the statement that discipleship is about following a particular person yeah and that, that as we pursue anti-racism for jesus let's not work for something but for someone that like i was shouting amen as i was reading that <laughs> um because I, yeah. I feel like that's the unique vision of the christian church or should be i just i just want to hear your heart more about that because I, I know there oh, has to be so many sermons, you know, and I'm not the best podcast host, but I just feel like there's so much more that I'm like, I, I want you to speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, I can also say that when I when I was looking for resources, I couldn't really find anything that really put Jesus like smack dab in the center and helped us understand again, hey, um, this is about following Jesus. This is not some kind of addition, some kind of add on. Um, the reality is like, okay, when we think back in our generation, in our lifetime or our, our, you know, last, let's say last hundred years of where we've seen amazing uh, work around racial righteousness, we look at the civil rights movement of the 60s, 70s. Who is leading that? It is the church. It is especially the black church that is leading that movement. And we can see the power that that comes with truly following Jesus in radical ways. Martin Luther King um, and many of his um, his colleagues would pray, you know, pray before their engagements, ask, 
to have the spirit of Christ in them as they engage the world and the brokenness of the world on many levels, individual, interpersonal, systemic, right? I mean, they had it all in mind because Jesus had it all in mind. Many people will say that if you look at the message of Jesus, you can summarize it by kingdom of God. He was constantly preaching the kingdom of God, which meant that God, that Jesus is Lord of every part of life at every level, you know, again, individuals, but also whole systems. And Jesus's first sermon was all about, I've come to set the captives free, you know, I've come to, to make sure justice is done and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes. And so when we actually look at the life of Jesus, we see how he operated on all of these levels. And often it does take a marginalized group of people to really bring that out, right? And to really call out all the aspects of who Jesus was. And so... Yes, number one, this whole journey is ultimately about going back to who Jesus was and what he calls us to. And we see that clearly in the civil rights movement um, of the 60s. I feel like we haven't seen it as much in this current moment, which concerns me. A lot of people interested in justice, but not as interested in Jesus. And I think, oh, no, 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 no. We can't have that dichotomy. You know, we've got to do justice in Jesus's way. We, we have to do it with his character, with his life, with his love. And guess what? When we do that, we'll also grow closer to him and closer to his heart. And so that's been so beautiful for me um, on this journey is growing closer to Jesus on the way yeah. as I link arms with Jesus in this ministry. Yeah. So, and, and I talk a lot about balance with people on this, on this podcast. We talk, you know, how do you, how do you sustain health? How do you sustain kind of your own vision, your own identity in this, I have to guess, and and tell me if I'm wrong, I, like in your leadership role within the covenant, as far as other leadership roles, I would imagine you standing in this gap of discipleship and anti-racism, you've been pulled with voices saying, you're not, you're not talking enough about Jesus, it's too much of this other thing, or others saying, you're not focusing enough on race. How do you how do you walk that line as as kind of the leader as a disciple yourself, um, you know I'm I'm a tough like I'm tough to offend, and so I I yeah. tend to be really optimistic about people and just go I'm going to trust that they're following Christ, but I know that that's not always the case, especially within religious institutions, and I know that pressure that that can feel, and I just love to hear your your take on how that's how that's impacted you how you walk in that. So let me tell you a little bit more about myself here, Justin, mm -hmm. because, ah, yes, many of my um, colleagues of color, I would say, find themselves, rightfully so, getting fatigued on this journey um, and frustrated by pushback, et cetera. I'm sure that will happen with me, yeah. but, but, um, I also am coming from a pretty unique vantage point as well, which allows me, I think, a little bit more, I'm, not, I'm trying to think of the right word, grace or flexibility, maybe understanding. No, 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 understanding. Okay, so what do I mean by that? So um, in the book, I talk about how um, I, actually this journey is a lot about me becoming more anti-racist. Hmm. That, that's what this journey has been about. I am first talking to myself uh, on this journey, not just white people. Yeah. This is unique, okay? Yeah. 
Um, why is this? Because I was um, raised, I, although I was born in the South Bronx in a low resource area, my parents eventually got uh, participated in a low-income program that allowed them to move out to a well-resourced neighborhood, predominantly white, on Long Island. So all I have ever known is growing up in pretty nice place, you know, plenty of resources, predominantly white. I assimilated into that 100%. Okay? I mean, that was my world. And um, as a result of that, I developed some interesting attitudes, you know? So I grew up, for example, watching the Cosby show and Claire Huxtable was my was my idol. And it was like, I'm going to be just like her. She, she got kids. She's got a fancy townhouse in Brooklyn. She's got great hair. She's got it all. I'm going to be just like Claire Huxtable. And how do you get there? Oh, you just have to work hard, right? I mean, yeah. just be like the Cosbys, work hard, be professional, you have a good life, you know? And we don't need to keep talking about race all the time. So basically, I'm trying to paint this picture yeah. that that was my that was my opinion as mm-hmm. well. And um, people like Cosby are sort of uh, he, he's known for actually uh, preaching kind of against his own community. Right. Yeah. And saying to other black people like, what's the matter with you? You yeah. know, you got to you got to figure pull yourselves up by your bootstraps here and be like me. And so this is very interesting, Justin, because um, communities of color themselves have been sort of, fra- they've fractioned, um, they, 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 they have been divided because some of us have had some great opportunities and haven't experienced as much of the results of systemic racism. Basically, we've escaped it for one reason or another. We've had a black president, Justin. Hey, we're right? there. <laughs> yeah, like we, we, we're there. And so that's the thing. It's true. Like yeah. we've got a lot of people of color in high places that that's like never before. Okay, that is true. And so if you just pay attention to that or that's been your experience, you could be a person of color and still miss that there's actually systemic racism at work. Yeah. One major turning point for me was when I was at Goldman Sachs, I was asked to, well, we had a volunteer program. So I signed up and I went to teach at an inner city school in New York. And I just remember going there and thinking, these are just miniature versions of me. Um, I'm just going to inspire them to work hard. And then, you know, they can be just like me one day. And I got there and I could not believe that this was a school in the United States of America. I'll just tell you that the state of affairs it was dirty. It was dilapidated. It was, you know, no resources. It was dark. The, the kids in the classroom were just totally they were overcrowded. You know, it was chaos. I could not believe this was a school hmm. in our country, you know, but it was. Um, and a mostly black and brown, very impoverished place. And it just broke my heart. But but that's when I started to see, oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, just working a little harder is probably not going to get you to where I am, right? Um, there is still systemic, deep systemic patterns at work. Um, and I can do something about it. You know, I, I can do something about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I love I love that story. And I, and I love I love your vulnerability in this of you know, the, the, and it almost is, is similar to a, a text I wrote that felt just like it was a confessional. Like I've got to deal with this in my, and this is the best way I know how to do this. This is the only way. Cause if I don't, I'm going to bust, like I've got to get, I've got to get this out. So you asked me how, you know, basically how do you continue in this work or whatever? And 
for me, it's like, well, I was there in a sense, in some ways, I was kind of there myself. Yeah. Well, I've made it as a black woman. Like, what's wrong with, you know, the black community? Why can't they make it? And I, so I had kind of similar attitudes, um, as ironic as that is. Now, not to say that I've never experienced racism. Let me not, let me clear. Right. right. Um, but there's some ways in which I'm, I'm preaching to myself. And I understand that um, people are at different places. And I think the more we can be enlightened, the more, um, and the more the Holy Spirit can work, we can see change over time. And that's, again, that's the beauty of the call to discipleship, because that's what discipleship is, right? It's coming alongside wherever someone is and walking with them closer to Jesus. I, I love that. I, the other piece that I really want to talk about that I thought was um, just, and I'm still thinking about this weeks mm-hmm. later, is how does, how does this connect to healing and trauma? I Ooh. love, I love your, your reflection that there is trauma for the victims of racism and there is trauma for the victimizer. And, and I, I want you to speak to that a little bit. And then I want to connect that and ask some questions about my own context and give you some descriptions and just, just talk a little bit about that. But what do you mean by that when you talk about the victim suffers trauma, the victimizer suff- suffers trauma, healing is needed at every level? Oh, my goodness gracious. So let me just say that that, that chapter kind of came came about as I was on the journey. Mm-hmm. I didn't originally have a chapter about healing and trauma, but as I got into it, I realized, oh my goodness, what we're actually dealing with is um, we're dealing with the trauma of racism on multiple levels and from multiple angles. And so there's many people who have spoken to this. And as I got deeper into it, I realized, yeah, that's part of what is making this so hard and so painful um, that we are, we are hurt. The word trauma comes from wound. And racism is a beast and it has wounded everyone, whether we realize it or not. So, um, yes, I I talk about it from the standpoint of both victim and victimizer. So from the standpoint of people of color, which is more obvious, um, what you see is there's whole communities that have been traumatized. When you look at, say, um, a a poor, impoverished uh, African-American community, um, that is riddled with crime. Like people are all about black on black crime or something. Listen, there's a million reasons for that. Some of them structural, having to do with redlining and all kinds of um, other other laws baked into the past, our country in the past. But some of it is um, just the the kind of trauma of being uh, an oppressed group for so long yeah. um, and kind of coming to a point of hopelessness, right? We have to understand that some of what we see is a result of, of um, great corporate trauma over time. And so I go into that. The same thing is true of the Native American community in our country in a deep way. I mean, for a while, they've had very high levels of alcoholism and suicide. I mean, it is and it is still, people have to understand this linked to this intergenerational over time, you know, this trauma and pain passed down from atrocities committed in the past. So we look at that. We look at what that looks like um, for people of color. We look at some aspects um, for people of color, too, that may be surprising. And so this is more what I would relate to. I talk about what internalized racism does to people of color. I talk about things like stereotype threat. So what I don't have time to go into it all now, but essentially um, I have struggled with perfectionism my whole life. 
I have struggled with massive uh, perfection to the extent that, you know, I've had to go to therapy for this um, and it was ruin, ruining my life in different ways. And part of that was because I was taught, you're a black woman, you're not as good. And so you need to, to work harder. You can't make mistakes. It ha everything has to be perfect. This is a kind of trauma <laughs> from racism that I believed and I internalized 100% that, yeah, you're right. I, I got to be perfect in order to, to, to do this life. Okay, so that has led to all kinds of trauma for the Black community um, as well, internalized racism and how sometimes we turn against each other because of that. And then, but the, the more surprising thing, of course, is like, what does trauma look like for the victimizer? There's been actual research done, something called perpetrator-induced traumatic syndrome. Hmm. And essentially, this, this studies the ongoing impact and trauma that comes from being a perpetrator, from, from hurting others or from being a part of, you know, an effort that is essentially hurting or oppressing others. They look at this, um, they study military. Um, you know, as a result of war and what happens to them. And so all kinds of interesting responses come from this, um, including things like uh, denial, <laughs> you know, denial of what's happened, um, frustration or a sort of inability to engage on the subject matter. Um, it's traumatic, for example, Justin, I imagine it is to think, oh, you know, my my ancestors, my white ancestors, you know, have traumatized others or gained at the expense of others. And that's kind of part of my identity. That's like, that's kind of traumatic. And the, when you hear about those things, you know, a knee jerk reaction is to say, hey, you know, I didn't do that or I don't want to face that. <laughs> right. Um, so that's a trauma response. And so we're seeing how on all sides, right, the beast that racism has been to us. Yeah. And it makes it very hard to make progress without without the Lord. Yeah, without yeah, without authentic healing and openness to the spirit. So I, I want to describe to you and I don't know, do you have experience within the Appalachian culture much at all? Oh no. <laughs> I all, I just have, you know, from afar, yeah. right? From movies and reading and sometimes the news, but yeah. No. Educate me. So, so well, and I don't see it that way. I but from from day one within the covenant, I have with my brothers and sisters of color in the covenant that were planning churches. I have found more um, connection, more community, more common heart with those who are functioning in the minority communities mm. than I have in in the suburban, in the predominantly white areas. And it, and it has been a perpetual sense of frustration that we don't, and I don't mean this on the covenants part, I mean it on my, the, the community that I'm a part of on our part, that we don't um, stand in solidarity with those communities more often because we share so much of those pieces. You know, the Appalachian culture was, and I always tell people it's, it's not Appalachia, right? We, <laughs> I, I hear you. I'm, I'm like learning. Okay. That's the pronunciation. Um, okay. That's a big deal. If you ever, if you ever come to West Virginia, that's a big deal. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I hear you. But this community was formed from, you know, Scotch Irish immigrants who were brought here as the lower class automatically, the white trash and decided, hey, we're going to go live in the mountains because that's safer, or we don't have a choice but to live in these these rural parts. And so from the from the beginning, we've been kind of on the margins, um, and yet 
could experience and pursue freedom, unlike those of the black community, right? right? And West Virginia itself was formed as a reaction against Virginia, as a reaction against systems that were held up. And so we were, we were this, yes, we want to be a little more Northern than Southern in the time of the Civil War. However, we kept these amendments in place that said, well, let's, let's not crush the slavery system completely. We'll let slaves kind of get older and older and age out. And so we've got this, and I just call it a mixed identity. We've, we've got this sense of we were freedom fighters. We were this, this piece, but we also held this broken systemic system that we were like, yeah, let's, let's maintain this. And so I, I feel like my own context is one which is exactly what you described. There is trauma both as victims because we, we've experienced, we are not a, I always joke about this, we're not a sexy part of the country. No one is recruiting church planners or businesses to go to West Virginia. That just doesn't happen. Um, I haven't heard about there's that. There's so much stigma. There's, you know, there's so much, if you see a movie about those people, it's not a good representation. However, we are also victimizers. And, and there is that reflexive instinct and denial at times. Well, we're, we're not racist because we're West Virginia. And it's like, well, hold on. And it, it is a really, and I think most of our country is in this state right now, but, but the work of discipleship is very difficult when there's almost this identity crisis going on. I, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but. It does. And you, you are educating me. I'm loving it. <laughs> so, you know, I just say all that because I think, and specifically your story about Malcolm X's experience of trauma and what healing could have taken place had the church kind of stepped up and been the church that it was called to be. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of my last question shift here is what's your call to the church? What's, what's your proclamation to the church in this, in this moment? Um, as people who, you know, are living these identity crisis of, yeah, what, what do we do here? What, what does this look like? What are you seeing as a leader of the church, as someone who's saying, I'm in this every day, here's what we've got to wake up to? So in this brief conversation, we've talked quite a bit about my passion mm -hmm. for discipleship and evangelism. Let's just say shorthand, making disciples. Mm -hmm. I am passionate about seeing the Great Commission fulfilled to make disciples of all the peoples of the world and to see God's kingdom come. I am so passionate about this. And when I think about, okay, the question, what is my call? When we look back at the early church at a time when the church was growing and you know um, the kingdom was advancing in amazing ways, there's some very interesting things we see, but mostly what we see is a whole gospel. We see, we see on multiple levels, people as individuals are being called to repentance and reconciled to God. We saw communities and families that were brought together in forgiveness and in love and in the character of Christ. We saw that justice was being called out. Jesus was raising up and his disciples marginalized people and bringing people's whole peoples together, right? The first, the first time that we were called Christians was at Antioch. And that was in a, in a place where there were people from like multiple cultures all together worshiping Jesus and everyone was confused and had to give them a new name, you know, Christians. Yeah. 
And, and so when we actually are engaged in this whole gospel, the whole thing, you know, people see Jesus and the church expands and it grows. And for me, I, I just want to see us get back to that. I don't want us to downplay any part of what the Lord has called us to. I don't want us to get into to justice and anti-racism and forget about evangelism, right? I don't want us to do the opposite. Whenever we fracture, the gospel is fractured and its impact is fractured. And that's largely what we're experiencing today. Let's put it all together. That's my call. Let's yeah. put it all together for the sake of the gospel and the witness of the church. Yeah, I love that. I, And I, when I was doing doctoral work, I, one of the theologians I came across was raising the, the comment that in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem church could possibly be seen as a failure. And that, ah. it, and that it was the church at Antioch that became the missional expression of the church. And part of that was, you know, Jerusalem is still trying to figure out, well, do we like these Gentiles? Are they allowed? And Antioch is like, let's just let's just all gather up and pray over our leaders that we're sending out. And I and I love that. I, I think it's I think it's the heart of of what you're describing. I think it's really powerful. So I'm going to read you one more quote of yourself <laughs> that, that oh yeah jumped out at me. And then I want to I, you know I want to just hear you speak to this in in whatever way you want. But I, I think you said in one of its earliest forms, the word courage meant to speak one's mind by telling all one's heart. And what this means is that color courageous discipleship is not only about performing valiant deeds, which which I love and have struggled with because it feels like to be anti-racist, I'm not ever doing enough, right? And yeah. you, go, you go on to say it's also about being vulnerable. It's choosing to acknowledge, own, and share the stories of our own hearts, the stories that we might otherwise be ashamed of. We do this both for the sake of our own healing and so that we might extend healing to the world. Um, I just thank you for that statement. Thank you for that. It, 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 resonates because it's what I went through myself in leading a church through 2020, the racial reckoning that was taking place, and I, that I think continues to take place, although it grows quiet when the news stops covering it. And, and I think that that call to vulnerability was the piece that it, it has to continue to happen. Um, so I love that. I, I love your call to discipleship. What, what is that? What is that? I mean, sum that up for us in kind of what you what you see that to be. I talk about, you know, we need to put on the mindset of Christ and Christ. He was he was humble. He humbled himself to come to us and he made himself vulnerable in order to relate to us and to bring healing. And that's our call, right? We, we are to, to engage in kingdom work like Christ in the same way that he was willing to suffer, that he was willing to be vulnerable, that he was willing to share his life with others. Like that's how we're supposed to do it. He, we're supposed to forgive. Yeah. <laughs> we're supposed to have grace. We're supposed to love one another, right? These are never going to be values that the world holds up or aspires to, to the, to the extent that our Lord and Savior does. But when we do, and we put it all together, we, we can experience transformation and then the agents of transformation. Yeah, and vulnerability is costly, right? It takes a lot. Always. <laughs> we, follow, we follow a Savior who carried the cross, Yeah, and he calls us to the same. For sure, for sure. Michelle, I'm so grateful for your voice and your leadership, and... <laughs> um, 
it's it's cool. I we've not met really in person before this, and so it's a it's a gift. But I, I definitely appreciate your leadership and your your passion, not only in helping lead our denomination, but in this book. And know that we're using it as a resource here, and and just thrilled to have your voice out there. So oh, that just warms my heart. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs>